Where are you going? Sometimes in this life, we like to stroll, not really caring where we are going. It's a beautiful day and life is grand. Let's just see where we end up. That's fine if I'm relaxing. It's not fine if a knife slipped during meal prep and my bride is now streaming blood. I'm taking her to the emergency room now. Strolling too is not fine when it comes to eternity. I cannot have an indifferent attitude about the kingdom of God and hope that I make it. Well, I'm not as bad as Hitler after all, many will think today. But indifference will not attain the kingdom of God. Ask the rich young ruler who walked away from Jesus sad because Jesus' ask was too big. Jesus spoke to the church in Laodicea in Revelation three fifteen to 19. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. And so I ask you, where are you going? This year, as God grants me the opportunity to preach, we will examine the journey of the Christian life. Where are we going? Where are we walking? Are we walking with a purpose? And today on our journey, we will see from God's word that we should be a people who are living this life for the glory of God. I am not going to anchor in a single passage. I'm going to be all over. I've provided notes out there. If you're going, man, I couldn't keep up. And I want to know what those passages are. They're all on the sheet of paper on the stand outside the door. As we prep to hear the word of God, let's bow our hearts and minds before him. God, every opinion in this word, in this room is meaningless if it does not parallel, if it does not walk in stride with your word. So I beg even now today that you would guard our hearts and our minds, that we would hear the word of truth. God, that you would guard my lips, that you would be honored and made much of here in this place, that we would be a people who have seen God that they would know we have been with you in worship here today. We beg this in Jesus' name. Amen. The first and most important thing, really, in everything, is God's glory. God's glory must be preeminent above all other things, and God's word makes that plain to us. In Isaiah 42, verse 8, God speaks and says, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other. So before we get any further, it's like, okay, well, what is God's glory? 
What, when we think of glory, I hope our minds go to something bright and shining, something beautiful, for indeed it is. One saint has declared that it is the manifestation of all his attributes. It is that which can be known, that which is apparent of all his attributes. Another called it the infinite beauty and greatness of his manifold perfections. So if we marry those two things together to consider God's glory as the radiance of his beauty and greatness in all of his deeds and all of his attributes. There's a qualitative aspect to that. God's greatness, you can think of God's attributes, his holiness, his righteousness, his faithfulness, his wrath. As God is acting on his attributes, we see result and he is glorified in them. His goodness, his gentleness, his omnipotence, omniscience, omnipresence. So there's a qualitative aspect to God's glory, but also there is a perceivable aspect to God's glory. The word beauty was used, and we see that in Scripture as well. Asaph in Psalm 50 noted that out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. The very desire of David was to behold the beauty of God. In Psalm 27, he says, One thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. In fact, it is to be in places where God's glory was manifest. That was David's greatest joy. One psalm prior to that, Psalm 26, he says, O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. So desirable should be savoring God's glory that Moses desired this very thing from God. I invite you to turn to Exodus chapter 33. Few souls, few human souls have had encounters with the living God like Moses did. A burning bush, 10 extraordinary plagues, parting of seas, manna in the wilderness. And yet he had so intimate a relationship with God that in Exodus 33, verse 11, it says that the Lord used to speak to Moses as a man speaks to a friend. And whoever it was that wrote the prologue, the very end of Deuteronomy in chapter 34, verse 10, they state that Moses knew the Lord face to face. And yet Moses wanted more. Here in Exodus chapter 33, there was a threat that God was not going to go with them into the promised land because of Israel's rebellion. And Moses was like, no. You know, he's like, well, please don't, and begs the Lord not to abandon them. In the first, uh, excuse me, in 33, verse 16, he says, How shall it be known 
that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people. Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Your going with us shows that we're, just, we're not like everybody else. You are our God. And so he begs that God would go along. In verse 17, the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do for you have found favor in my sight and I know you by name. And so here in, in this extraordinarily intimate moment, Moses grasps for all of it. Verse 18, Moses said, please show me your glory. Show me your glory. This wasn't selfish. For him to say, let me see you in all of your beauty. Let me savor all of your radiance. You know, is it, is it a selfish thing to hear a great song and wish you could hear the whole concert? Or hear a snippet of music and go, oh, I would love to hear the whole of the thing. Is it a selfish thing to see a photo of the Alps if you are a skier and go, oh, what I would give to ski those slopes and to be there and to savor it. Moses desired a good thing. The problem is that none of us in our earthly state can fathom the fullness of God's glory. And God says that very thing to him in verse 20. He said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I pass by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face you shall not see. You cannot see the fullness of my glory and live. And so magnificent was this experience for Moses that when he came down from the mountain, he glowed. His face shone in chapter 34, near the end, verses 29 to 30. It says, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses and behold, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come near him. So extraordinary are the manifestations of God's glory that when Isaiah saw the Lord in his throne room in a vision in Isaiah 6, 5, Isaiah said, woe is me for I am lost for I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The glory of God was also evident in God the Son as he walked in human flesh. Certainly we know this in the episode of the Transfiguration where Peter, James, and John accompany Christ up the mountainside and Moses and Elijah appear to him and God speaks from heaven and says, this is my beloved son 
in whom I am well pleased. And there, afterwards, Jesus' face and garments shone like the sun. And we go, oh, that's, a, that's an amazing supernatural event. But it wasn't just in moments like that. John, in his gospel, at the opening of his gospel, chapter 1, verse 14, says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us. He lived with us. And as he lived with us, he continues, we have seen his glory, glory as, the, as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. In chapter two and verse 11, the wedding at Cana takes place and John narrates to us that Jesus turning water into wine at Cana was the first of his signs. And manifested his glory. His miracles, his signs pointed to his glory. Now, Jesus was not surprised at his glory. You know, you might you might think of you know Spider-Man when he got all of his 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 superpowers, like, whoa, this is crazy. You know, that stuff can shoot and strength and the like. But Jesus' glory was inherent. To him, to shine on the mountain was not a thing, was not a surprise nor startling to him. He was aware of the fullness of his glory. In his final prayer with his disciples the night before his execution, in John 17, 5, Jesus prays, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And he goes on, not, not just merely for his glory. At the end of his prayer, he says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, my disciples, my people, my sheep, may be with me where I am to see my glory. Jesus desired that we would see his glory. Glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. This is not a selfish thing. This is the best thing. If God and his glory are supreme in the cosmos, that seems to be very clear. It would be absolutely wrong for God to put anything above his glory. If anything else had a higher place or motivated God, even for God then, that would be idolatry and he couldn't do it all is for God's glory so the second point here is then it should not surprise us that creation glorifies God creation is for the glory of God the earth and the fullness thereof Psalm 8 verses 1 through 4 David recognizes this probably more than any other in the Psalms, he says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens and out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the, the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? The two Psalms that we read at the start of the service and 
the middle of the service spoke of the glory of God, the testimonies to the glory of God. Isaiah in chapter six, before he says, woe is me. He hears the seraphim talking to each other saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. That's now, that's present, even in the fallen world. Habakkuk notes that that glory is going to continue to the end for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as waters cover the sea. I mean, so obvious will be the glory of the Lord, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. It will be as water on the ocean. And we know that man sees God's glory. God tells us this in Romans chapter one. He notes that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness, unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God, his glory, is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. Here's the deal. We are accountable for what we know. And God's glory is there for everyone, plain to see. But this then brings us kind of face to face with a startling truth. And that is if all creation reflects and brings glory to God, it is then true that our chief end, the essence for which we find the fullness of our humanity is to glorify God. We are, after all, his image bearers. I mean, what in all creation would most naturally bring God glory than those who bear his image? And it is an echoing call for us throughout the word of God. We are created for this very purpose and God tells us so. In Isaiah 43, verses six and seven, God says, I will say to the north, give up and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. David says this very thing to all those. In first Chronicles 16, he says, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Give to him, reckon to him the glory that is due his name. That is what we are to do. Bring him an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. But we do not do that just with our lips. We do that with our bodies as well. We read this morning in, in adult Sunday school in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20, that we are to glorify God with our bodies. And you might think, oh, I'm going to have to do something really righteous and spiritual to glorify God in my body. And he goes, no. Paul continues in 1 Corinthians 
chapter 10, verse 31, he says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. My eating is for God's pleasure. My drinking, same. God intends to be glorified in the mundane of our lives. But God is also glorified in the horrors that come upon us as well. In John chapter 11, we have the story of Lazarus's death. And Jesus says something extraordinary before he goes and raises him from the dead. Jesus said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the son of God may be glorified through it. I mean, you go, I don't want to go through death. <laughs> I'd really rather not. I want you know, that rapture thing or if that's a thing, you know, that I just don't die. I just go to be with the Lord. That'd be great. But God uses suffering and death even for his glory. At the end of John's gospel, we see that the death that Peter is going to die is prophesied by Jesus. He prophetically tells Peter what is to come of him, and John provides a narrative aside for us and states, this he, Jesus, said to show by what kind of death Peter was to glorify God. Peter was to die, and in that death, it would glorify God. The fact that we are created to glorify God is echoed also in the hope of our glory to come. In the middle of Romans, Paul says, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So then, if I am created for God's glory, how do I live that out? How do I live for God's glory in this time and in this place? And let me start with a word of caution that if I know this and I don't do this, if I live for my glory and not for his, I'm guilty of treason. I have usurped God's glory. We see that played out in Acts chapter 12. Herod Agrippa I was in Caesarea and he had issue with the towns of Tyre and Sidon and brought them before him and he spoke angrily to them. And after his oratory with all of his robes on, they were like, ah, oh, he's speaking as a God. And he received the worship and God struck him dead in that moment. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Acts 12, 23. I read earlier, Romans 1, 18 to 20, that God's attributes are manifest. So what are you going to do with that? If the attributes are manifest, if you know that the glory of God is everywhere, we see what comes of those who do not acknowledge God's glory in Romans 1, 21 to 23. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, 
but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. I mean, this passage here is, it's tragic when you read this, but it's also instructive to us. You know, these, these people, God's evidence is everywhere. They can't not know that God is there and yet they reject him for something feeble. But it's instructive to us that God expects honor because he is worthy of honor. He expects thanksgiving from us because from him are all things. They did not honor him or give him thanks. We are created to give God glory. We are to reflect it in the world. We are his image bearers. Earlier, Sarah read Psalm 96. I want to echo what is expected of us in verses one through four. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be, a fear, to be feared above all gods. So how might I honor God in my day to day? How might I give him glory? And really, man, the, read scripture. I mean, to be obedient to what God calls us to is to bring him glory. To love my wife, to, for a wife to respect her husband, to train up our children, to honor your boss, the police and the president. These things glorify God when we do it for him. In 1 Peter 4, we see that we glorify God when we exercise our gifts in the church. When we live as the church, when we do the one another's in the church, we bring glory to God. Peter writes this. He says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep on loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. And now here's... Here's what Peter's getting to. When we do this, he says, the, what happens when we do this is that in order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. In Psalm 96, it tells us to speak. It tells us to declare. And it tells us to do it to the nations. And you're going, no, thanks. <laughs> I, don't want to, I don't want to be a missionary. That's not what I'm called to do. I'm just, I'm just here. I'm good. I'm good here. Some people's hearts might stir even now and go, yes, I want to do that. I want to go out to the nations. 
Praise God. Help, help us to know this, that we might encourage and exhort you to that end. But brothers and sisters, we are to do this with one another. We are to reflect God's glory to one another. I want to close in, in Colossians chapter 4 and kind of just pick it apart here briefly. There's an extraordinary example here in Colossians chapter 4. There's a number of clues that Paul has not been to Colossae, but that this church was started by a guy named Epaphras. But in his final greeting to the Colossians, we see Paul glorifying God within the church by telling them of what God has done. Look in verse 7 with me. Tychicus will tell you about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you everything that has taken place here. Why? For God's glory. This isn't Paul boasting, hey, look what we did here. We we built this church. It's not what he's doing. Let me tell you what God has done here. And Paul goes, wait, I can't go. And so I'm going to send Tychicus to you. And he's going to tell you and encourage you with everything that is happening right now. Why? That it would encourage your hearts. Not only does God receive glory when we share what he is doing, but it is a great encouragement to our brothers and sisters in Christ to hear what he is doing in your life. That they may too glorify God for that thing. Glory to God is multiplied in our telling of what God is doing. And Paul doesn't end there. Aristarchus, fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, there are other people suffering in prison at this time, and you go, well, that's a drag. That's a downer. And I say, no, it's not, because God's glory comes even in that. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 12, Paul writes, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, here's Paul telling again what's going on with him, has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to the rest that my imprisonment is for, sorry, that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So Paul's telling them, hey, don't, don't, be, don't feel like my prison, imprisonment's a downer. The whole guard knows about the gospel now because of this. And oh, by the way, because the saints around me know this, because I have shared this with them, they are now all the more bold to speak the truth of the gospel. Paul closes in 
the letter to Colossae, speaking of Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, greets you, always struggling. What's Epaphras doing? He's always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Your guy, your guy's been a blessing to me. We go, praise the Lord. That's awesome to hear. When we hear what, what David Flink is doing down in Arica, Chile, which we don't even know where that is, and, or Josh Longoria on the Wasatch Front, we are encouraged. We don't go, oh, there's Josh boasting about himself. We are created for God's glory. And one very simple way we can do that is to share with one another. What is God doing in your life? Tell others of it. You're not boasting. Now, if you said, well, I want you to know that I read all of Mark yesterday. And I go, oh, that's charming. But if you say, man, yesterday I started reading Mark and I was just captivated to see all that God was doing before I knew it. I read the whole thing. Is that a different thing? That's a different thing. I was blown away by God in reading his word. It builds up the brothers. It glorifies God in the telling. Tell of what you read. In 2 Corinthians 4, verse 15, Paul notes that in doing this, that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. I mean, you may not remember what you read after breakfast. I would encourage you to try and remember a nugget every time you sit down to read where you go, oh, that was so good, so that you can purposefully share it with another brother and sister. It may be your spouse. It may be your son or daughter. It, it may be somebody at school or somebody at work, but purpose in your mind to Remember God's work. And what we've seen Paul do here, share it. Tell what, not only what God is doing in your life, but tell what God is doing in the lives of others. I mean, it was a great thing for me to share with others what God did here with regard to our insurance and his provision here in this little bitty church. We go, praise God, that is a work of his. The more the more I see and fathom God's glory around me, the more I weep for how little I have exalted and reflected his glory in my own life. This is, this is our life, to bring glory to the living God. And so I ask you again, where are you going? If, if we are his, if we will dwell forever, it is going to be in the glory of God, in the presence of his glory. But even now, in his word, in the creation, in our circumstances, lives, and families, we see it all around us. May God give us eyes to see his glory, that we may exult in him and return worship and glory back to him. Let's bow. Oh God, may it be so. May the truth of your glory be high and lifted up in our hearts and minds. Help us to see you bigger than we do, for we will never see you as big as you are, great and beautiful. 
We long for that day when we will bask in your glory and worship you in truth and spirit and unencumbered by our sin. Father, receive the worship of the saints and be blessed as we go from this place. In Jesus' name, amen.